Thanks for listening to the Tea Leaves podcast. Please enjoy this Tea Leaves conversation between Rich and former chairman and CEO of Cisco, John Chambers, that was aired on September 3rd, 2018. We're currently coming up with new episodes for you to enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. I'm Rich Verma, and each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. And I'm flying solo today without Kurt, but I'm very excited to be sitting down here in lovely Palo Alto with our next guest, the former CEO of Cisco Systems, John Chambers. John made Cisco what it is today and is legendary in the technology business, having guided Cisco from a company with $70 million in revenue when he joined in 1991 to $47 billion in revenue when he stepped down as CEO in 2015. During his tenure, John was consistently rated as one of the best CEOs and corporate leaders in the world and was most recently awarded the Outstanding Civil Service Medal by the U.S. Army, as well as France's National Defense Gold Medal, making him the only foreign business leader to receive that award. John was vice chairman of President George W. Bush's National Infrastructure Advisory Council and served on President Clinton's Trade Policy Committee. He's involved himself in corporate social responsibility and initiatives worldwide, including work in China, Lebanon, Jordan, and in the Palestinian territories. Additionally, President Macron of France recently appointed him the first global ambassador of French tech. He is now the CEO of JC2 Ventures and also the chairman of the U.S.-India Strategic Partnership Forum. John, we could probably go on forever with your bio, but in the interest of our time, um, we're going to stop there. But I want to say welcome to Tea Leaves, and thank you so much for doing this. Well, Rich, it's, it's an honor to be with you today. You were extremely kind on the comments. We probably could have varied just a couple of areas I need to improve on, <laughs> but that's what friendship's about. And it'll be fun today discussing what I think is the most strategic area of the world for the United States, and especially the relationship between uh, India and the U.S. Yeah, no, that, and that's where we got to know each other, and I'm really excited to be on the board of the Strategic Partnership Forum, something that that you launched. Um, and I want to come back to that okay. at the end. But I want to start uh, way back uh, so people get a chance to know who you are, who, mm-hmm. who John Chambers is. Um, from Charleston, West Virginia, to the banks of the Kanawha River in West Virginia. Just tell us what that was like uh, growing up there. And how does a kid from West Virginia, from Charleston... Uh, get this kind of deep interest in technology and and end up um, on the career path that you did? Well, often we don't realize how quickly things change. Uh, Charleston, when I was growing up, was at the center of the global chemical industry, mm-hmm. number one chemical location in the world with FMC and Carbide and DuPont, uh, almost 10,000 world-class engineers, the best and the brightest. Uh, the area was literally on fire in terms of economic opportunity, et cetera. And I was the son uh, of two doctors who believed education were the equalizers in life. And growing up in West Virginia, tremendous honor, very proud of my home state. But because West Virginia missed transitions, mm-hmm. uh, the economic implications were huge. And so I began to learn early on what happens when you miss a transition. What do you, what do you mean by, by missing a transition? Well, we missed a transition in terms of we 
kept doing the same thing the same way too mm-hmm. long. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were economically very solid with uh, 125,000 coal miners. Today, uh, we mine as much coal, but with less than 10,000 miners uh, on it. We were the chemical center of the world, and we missed the transition to the next generation of chemical centers and the clean energy that needs to go with natural gas and purification of our coal industry as well. And so I saw what happens when it doesn't change. And uh, my parents did teach me education as the equalizer in life, went to college for nine and a half years, had a very understanding life <laughs> in a lane, and I love college. And when you're poor, you and everybody else is poor too. Uh, ended up in high tech purely out of luck. I never intended to go into high tech. Didn't even like technology. Mm. But IBM showed me in an interview uh, what technology could do in terms of changing business, and they had me. And I went uh, through a number of years, six years with IBM, and then went to Wang Laboratories up in Boston, Route 128, and saw again around Route 128 what happened when an area didn't change. Many people may not know this that's in your uh, listening group today, but 128 was the Silicon Valley of the world for decades. Right. But we did the same thing too long. Yeah. And we got left behind again. Now it's Silicon Valley out here in the West Coast. Uh, so I got into technology by luck. Uh, I love what technology can do in terms of changing the world. And I love how technology, if done right, combined with education, can be the equalizer in life for every every state, if you will, in India, every state in the U.S., every territory in France, as an example. Yeah. I, I grew up not too far away from you. I grew up in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, yes. with a lot of similarities, um, you know, thriving uh, kind of industrial part of America. Yes. And then a mass exodus of jobs. And then... The still industry collapsed. Yeah. Very painful set of transitions mm-hmm. um, that still haven't... that Those those counties and areas in, in the country that still haven't rebounded. And I'm just wondering... And, and by the way, I also had uh, two parents who were educators mm-hmm. and happened to be from India, which was a very tough experience. You can imagine bringing report cards home where... Um, were Anything there. less than they wasn't acceptable. Oh, no. Yeah. We... Yes. Focused a lot on the B pluses, like, yeah. you know, what the hell happened here? <laughs> um, but I'm just curious, given your roots in West Virginia, yes. mine in Pennsylvania, is is technology, um, you know, people think of it as a panacea, but mm-hmm. can it be a part of revitalizing those communities that you and I come from? It not only can, it must be. And if we don't do it this time, those communities will get worse, not better. Mm. Uh, in education was the equalizer in life when I was growing up. Yeah. My parents clearly instilled that in me and your parents and you. Uh, now it's technology and digitization uh, where every company, every city, uh, every individual will become digitized. Mm-hmm. Connecting 500 billion devices to our bodies and to the internet will transform all businesses. Uh, however, just like the internet revolution, it will destroy a certain number of jobs. So if we don't create more jobs and we destroy, plus the jobs needed for the new workforce, then we could have a digital divide that's a real problem. So I think it can be something that every city and every geography in the world can become a startup city and startup generation. And I think it's so important because the large companies in total won't add jobs for the next decade because of artificial intelligence and the digital uh, capabilities in terms of tremendous productivity uh, and automation. So it's up to the small companies and the startups to generate the majority of jobs in the future. You've got to have this targeted into each state in the U.S. and each, each state 
in other countries around the world or territories, whatever they call them. So you've, you've been a pioneer on technology, but mm-hmm. you were also an early um, pioneer on Asia. And mm-hmm. um, you took some risks uh, when other uh, companies and other CEOs yeah. were not willing to go into Asia. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and why mm-hmm. you decided um, to take at least Cisco down that, down that road? Well, I had the tremendous honor that I, I learned from IBM both what they did right and wrong, and they missed the transition from mainframes to mini computers. Mm. Then I went to Wang Laboratories, and Wang did great, and a lot of things very good, and missed the transition to the PCs and the internet. And you mm-hmm. see the common theme here. You don't miss market transitions. But uh, at the time at Wang, Dr. Ann Wang, who's the smartest man I've ever met in my life, he invented magnetic core memory ones and zeros going across the Harvard Square. Mm. And he was a very good friend, and he gave me responsibility responsibility for Asia Pacific. I wanted the U.S., which is bigger. And he said, no, John, I want you to run Asia Pacific. And he wanted me to understand the global economy. And he trusted me as the only non-Chinese ever to run that part of the world for him. Uh, It was a tremendous education. So I went in with a a very crisp understanding of the region. The fact that uh, Jiang Zemin, the president of China at that time, was Dr. Wang's classmate, I went in with a a key advantage in terms of trust and openness. And uh, I learned a lot about China and and knew from the beginning they would become a a high-tech powerhouse over time uh, on it. So when I I came to Cisco, and uh, the first major decision I made in 95 as CEO was to bet on China in a big way when nobody else was. It clearly turned out to be one of uh, uh, the market transitions identified ahead of time that surprised people and turned out to be very right. And it's very similar to the transition I now see occurring in India and France, where I bet on both those countries three years ago when most people would not. But you could you could see the transition occurring in all three countries in similar ways in terms of government leaders who got it, uh, understanding the economic and job creation impact if they did it right of their countries, also understanding if they didn't move, what were the potential downsides, and not a panacea. As you make changes like this, there's going to be challenges along the way, and you never have major gain without taking good business and governmental and political risk, and there'll be setbacks along the way, and that's part of building a great company or a great nation. Let me ask you kind of about the current environment we find ourselves mm-hmm. in in the United States and in other parts of the world, the kind of rise of economic nationalism, mm-hmm. you know, America first or make in India, for example, or, you know, these, these kinds of uh, tensions. Are there inconsistencies in, um, you know, having a big presence in Asia and also doing right? by American shareholders and American workers. How do you tell that story to Americans that it's important for us to be present in Asia and this this can actually be a, a win-win? Well, I, I start with the most basic element. Uh, and people are motivated by how this makes their lives better. Right. They're also motivated by fear. If you don't do something, what are the implications? Uh, it's a complex set of relationships, but it's one that the U.S. must have. Uh, I believe very strongly the most strategic partnership relationship in the world for the U.S. is India for mm-hmm. a whole bunch of reasons. 
I also believe very strongly in terms of the relationship with China. It's one that I've been involved in for uh, over 35 years. And I think it's a win-win relationship if done right, uh, but it's one that has to evolve much quicker than it is. You have to have both sides winning in trade agreements. You have to have both sides winning in job creation. Both sides have to understand if you're going to have a partner on the other side, how does your partner win? And that ought to be the first question you ask. You almost want to write the press release of what the relationship should be uh, before you make your first move. And all the way back to France as an example, we actually did that with the French government leadership, outlined what would France success be as the innovation gateway for all of Europe and as the startup nation in Europe at a time that no one, including myself, five years ago would have ever bet on France, put resources there, much less did startups. Right. And it shows you how fast things change and leadership has to change along the way. And then you've got to, I know people don't like the word market, but you have to educate people on the advantages and why it's a win to all people involved. And you've got to make sure it is. That's, that's the key, right? You can't just tell people. There's actually got to be demonstrable proof yes. that when I do a trade deal or when I open up a facility... Mm-hmm in Bangalore, Chennai, or other parts of Asia, that there is a benefit to American workers and American companies. Absolutely is. And and the job creation engine is huge if done right. Right. Uh, At the same token, you've got to be sure the trade deal is a win-win. And there are times when the U.S. has negotiated, in my opinion, a win-win trade deal. But to go to the bigger picture, you have, let's use two countries that are most populous in the world, in, in India and China. Uh, they're going to be in the top three economies of the world with the U.S. For us not to have an extremely strong win-win relationship with both of them would be foolish. Right. And so I think the U.S. is in a unique position if we have the courage to make the changes. And what you're seeing, back to the concept of technology, is government leaders are outlining a digital strategy for their country. Right. And an ability to say what this means to the country and how do you position your country for the future, not the past. I have a firm saying that what causes a a company or a country to fail or a geographic reason like West Virginia or Boston 128 is when you do two things wrong. You miss market transitions because mm-hmm. they wait for no one and mm-hmm. they are brutal, especially enabled by technology. And the second is you stay doing something that surprises people, stay doing the same thing or the right thing too long. And that gets you in equally as much trouble. We're entering a world where you disrupt or you're going to get disrupted. And the fast will beat the slow at a pace we've never seen. The internet evolution happened over 20 years. Digital revolution much faster, probably three to five times the impact of the internet. That's interesting. This is a theme you keep going back to, though, the not uh, missing the transition, being attuned to it, and knowing when it's happening and how to take advantage of it. Exactly. If you're in the steel industry like you were in Pennsylvania or the chemical coal industry like I was in West Virginia, and then you see it again in Boston, and you see it on many computers, and you see the transitions, you realize how important it is. And you've also got to approach it with what is the opportunity at the end, but what are the tough decisions that have to be made and how do you change the education system and how do you prepare a workforce in all the countries affected that allow them to participate in it? Uh, If you don't do it right, you create a digital divide, which makes today's economic divide look small. So how do you make it inclusive on how you do it? And and how do, do you really, when you think about a strategic partnership, and it's hard for most people to do this because we tend to be focused on ourselves, 
first thing I do when I negotiate a strategic partnership, either at Cisco or now in JC2 Ventures, and we do this a lot, both with countries, but also with the companies that we coach and mentor and form the relationships with to go way beyond financial investing. I think of what's the win for my partner first. And then I ask them to do the same thing for me. Then let's outline what does the press release look like five years out that says, here's what's capable, and that everything we do should be moving toward that. That's smart. And most people make the mistake of playing that chess game out one or two moves at a time. And when you do it one or two moves at a time, first it gets disrupted disrupted way too easy uh, with changes in leadership or the event of the day. Uh, and secondly, your counterparts who are playing out the chess game in terms of total will move at a speed that you're not. And so both of those are bad. That's really good advice. I want to talk a little bit more about India in sure. particular. Because you have uh, called India, uh, I think you said recently, uh, out of all the economies in the world, India is the one country I would bet on. Mm -hmm. And I I just wonder uh, why that is and and what gives you the confidence and optimism about India? Well, it's interesting just to give you background a little bit and all the way back to my roots in West Virginia, I'm dyslexic. And uh, people who are dyslexic, uh, you learn differently. But once you learn how to learn differently, it actually, you can take a weakness and make it a strength. Mm. And I'd argue you're more a product of how you handle your setbacks in life than you are your successes. But dyslexics have to think ABZ. You have to think in terms of the total picture and how does mm. it evolve. And uh, partially because of education, partially because of the companies and geographic regions that I was in, I've learned how to do pattern recognition pretty quickly. And so I see the patterns occurring, and I connect the dots. Mm. And interestingly enough, that's a, a, a title of the book that I'm, I'm uh, going to bring out in September about leadership in a startup world. But when you connect the dots, you can see the trends. So for me, it was very easy when Modi got elected. I saw what this man was like. And when I met with him, and I'm good at reading people, uh, I saw that it was really he cared about his country more than anything else, but he also cared about creating win-wins. Mm -hmm. And he had a vision of how do you bring, using today's words, a digital India through for the benefit of everyone in his country, all 1.3 billion people across 29 states, six territories. And how did you make it a win for the U.S.? And he understood how to do that in a very unique win-win fashion. And so you see that type of leadership and you know how to bet on the trends and you have to have the courage to be principled in your focus. And I watched the Prime Minister Modi and we talk all about his accomplishments, but he's risk-taking. He's willing to set audacious goals that almost no one else is willing to do. And then he makes most of them come true. Right. And some of them, of course, won't because when you're taking good risks, not all of them do. Uh, his demonetization move was brilliant. Uh, it occurred over a weekend, set the currency for his country's digital future in a way that he was criticized for. And I believed it was the absolutely the right move I hope that if it asked me, I'd have had the courage to say, do it. He didn't. Right, right. But uh, once he did it, I understood the full implications yeah, of the we positives. Were, we were there for that. And yeah. um, it was actually election night um, here in the United States. Yes, so we were, um, all the papers there had to change the front page of their papers for stories the next day because they were going to focus on the U.S. election. Yes. And of course, they had to write about the demonetization. And we we saw uh, the huge impact. But you're right, it was a, it was a bold was a bold move, but what do you say to other CEOs yes. or U.S. boards of directors who say, geez, we've been in India for a while, or you know, we face these um, regulatory and bureaucratic yes. problems. Is it worth it for us to hang in there even longer? When will we start to see 
uh, the returns that you talk about? Well, first, I think that's a fair criticism going back five or 10 years. And by the way, Cisco, I bet big on India as my second world headquarters uh, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it worked out well for us, but not great. India was a slow follower, not a fast and innovative leader. Uh, today, it's a fast, innovative leader. And we talked about the demonetization, the same thing on the goods and uh, 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 services, tax, et cetera, and the changes that he's making at tremendous speed. And where else in the world, and this is fun to look into another CEO's eyes and say, which country would you bet on having the fastest growing GDP for the, for the right. next decade? Right. And I said three years ago, it was going to be India. Mm. Much more risky to say then. Now, it's very probable India will grow between 7 and 10% a year for the next decade. I don't know another major country in the world that can come close to that. And if the prime minister is able to do that at the higher end of that, that means his per capita income doubles right. every seven to eight years. Right. And so mil- millions are going to be lifted out of poverty and absolutely. incredible infrastructure gains and giant middle class. Opportunities and, for everybody. Yeah. But it's got to be a win-win. It's not the old trade agreement that was done 45 years ago. And Henry right. Kissinger is a good friend. He said, John, the, the business council, if you will, the strategic partnership forum between the India and the US today is different than what he started 45 yeah. years ago. It's about how do you make this inclusive for every citizen of both countries? It's about how do you introduce the startups because that's where the job creation innovations are going to come. How do you bring this across all the geographies? And you've got to have the courage to go for it. And that's what I see in India. And interestingly enough, the same thing I see from Prime Minister, uh, I'm sorry, President Macron in uh, uh, France, in, France. in terms of making changes at a pace. Who would have ever thought France would be the best right. place to invest in Europe? Right. Let me let me ask you about that in particular the sure. the passion of yours, which is uh, technology. Yes, um, and I'll come back to France in a second. But this and Prime Minister Modi's passion, which is also technology, yes, yes. and he's come here to Silicon Valley and talked about that yeah. same issue. The but he's talked about it in a way where he talks about the intersection of technology and human development, lifting people up mm-hmm. as as you have. Um, but give us uh, a practical sense. Is that just kind of broad aspirational talk or does that really impact people's lives on the ground in villages across India? Is How does that actually help them transform their lives? So let's start with the aspirational uh, leadership first and then the practical implementation. Leaders have to define a very clear, and I believe in this world, a very disruptive goal and have the courage to go for it. Otherwise, you get left behind as a country and your citizens do as well. Uh, You've got to do it with a portfolio play, realizing some things will work and some will not. Uh, In the case of Prime Minister Modi, his vision and his strategy is his own. He really does that himself. We've right. had the chance to talk about it multiple times. Right. I mean, the guy is amazing on how he does this. And trying to move a, the biggest aircraft carrier in the world, 1.3 billion people, is hard to do. Uh, but he's making great progress in it. But it can change the lives of every individual. It will probably extend the average age uh, of a citizen maybe by a decade, mm. uh, if done right. 
uh, it perhaps can get the economic growth in India without the damage to the environment that occurred in the U.S. or Europe or in China with their economic growth. Uh, it He ties it together in a way that talks about job creation, incremental GDP growth of 3 to 4%, uh, education system that's got to change, inclusiveness within its smart cities, security, healthcare. He does this all, and here are the elements together that are really changing it. Right. That's enlightened leadership. And uh, it is amazing how you see that common theme halfway around the world from a person with a dramatically different background in France, but that's exactly the same way that Macron defines it. And interestingly enough, I, you were kind enough in the introduction to mention that I'm the first uh, global uh, uh, high-tech ambassador for France. Right. Uh, Prime Minister Modi's often called me his best ambassador, <laughs> and I had a chance to travel with uh, President Macron from France on their state visit to India and watch these two leaders and their teams. What was that like? That must have been fascinating. It was a dream come true. Yeah. (laughs) Because I I believe clearly in both leaders tremendously. I believe both leaders are models for the rest of the world in terms of how things will change. And both of them are unselfish in terms of wanting to focus on what's right for their country and, and willing to take the risk that they know has to occur for that to to happen and willing to take the criticism, which Rich, you and I both know at times is brutal right. uh, in this country, in the U.S., in India, and in France, when bumps occur and you never have gained without occasional setbacks. Yeah. Uh, what's, um, what's President Macron doing right? What have you talked about in terms of the, the emphasis on technology and innovation and the startup culture? Yeah. And um, help us understand why the startup culture is so important and the innovation ecosystem. Sure. President Macron, from the time he was economic minister, we were actually on stage together mm-hmm. uh, talking about France's transformation. He also came here. I was honored to have him to my house as economic minister, and he met with the startups and other things. And uh, he understands that the job creation engine, while big companies are important to all of the nations around the world, they're probably not going to add many headcount. In fact, with digitization and AI, as we discussed earlier, and machine learning, robotics, et cetera, they may not add headcount at all. So the startup engine is where innovation is going to come from and absolutely where job creation. And then he sets audacious goals. You can imagine saying to become the number one startup nation in Europe and trusting an American high-tech person to, at times, be his wingman, his ambassador, to help that happen. How many countries would do that in the world? Can you imagine the U.S. doing that? Rich, you saw this. And we tend to, at times, look to ourselves as opposed to how can you do tremendous accomplishments on a global scale. Right. So uh, startup culture in France, United States, India, all critically important. Now, a a cynic would say that the startups are really trying to find shortcuts to success. They're going to skip over the mentoring. They're going to skip over the long product development cycle. And it's essentially the lottery of the technology world. How, how, do, you, how do you answer that well, uh, you critique? Know, well, you know, it's fun, Rich. In my <laughs> new role, when you're, you're CEO of Cisco or even chairman, I had to be gentle in some of my answers. Right. And because there are a lot of implications right. that come out of them. Right. The nice thing about new role, I don't do anything I don't enjoy doing. <laughs> and I can be remarkably candid. I think in this case, the critics are just wrong. Mm-hmm. And they need to know they can do tremendous harm with that mentality. No startup's going to survive who isn't thinking long-term. No startup's going to survive that isn't thinking about the differentiation. Uh, most startups work 
many more hours per average employee than their counterparts do in large business. And it's important for all of us to know this trend is happening at tremendous speed. It doesn't matter if you're in IIT, uh, in uh, India, uh, Polytechnique in uh, France or in Stanford here, 70% of the students want to go to startups. That's right. where the best and brightest are going. So our future will be around startups. And uh, I'd debate anybody anywhere on that topic. We have no choice but to become startup nations. That's great. Okay. So tell me about your new venture, JC2 Ventures, yes. and um, what you're focused on. And also, uh, let's talk a little bit about the Strategic Policy Forum as well, I'm about sure. both of those uh, ventures. Just tell the, okay. tell the listeners what, what you're up to. All right. Both so on uh, JC2 Ventures, it's a spatial purpose focus uh, organization that is attempting to be a role model as well as an example for how do you get startups growing and how do you help them scale and grow at a tremendous speed. Uh, it's interesting enough, Rich, is as much focused on job creation mm. with an audacious goal of 45% year-over-year headcount growth for all these companies, wow. which means by definition, you've got to grow revenues above 50% in total to make it happen. And it's exactly where I think job creation has to occur. Uh, the fun thing is I get my pick of the litter for the top startups in the world and uh, uh, and are you looking globally? Or looking focused, globally, okay. but primarily the U.S., India, and France okay. for the reasons we discussed earlier. And it ranges from drones to defensive drone capabilities uh, to the movement of open, transparent government to five security plays within it, data center evolution, uh, solving world hunger with crickets and protein. Uh, as you think about it, how does artificial intelligence change business models? Uh, completely a wide range of topics that together actually can transform every business in the world. And so I hope this will be a role model for that. We also spend half of our time giving back, just talking with startups and helping them grow and scale. To the second part of the strategic forum and what we're doing with the U.S. India Strategic Forum, it's really a movement for the future, mm -hmm. not looking back of a trade organization of 45 years ago, but between two most strategic countries, I think, in terms of this development, India and the U.S., and how does both country and every citizens in both countries win from this, and how do you articulate it? How do you paint the picture of what the mutual win is? How do you have the courage for businesses not just to focus on their own interests, but the interests of the other country and the other country's businesses? How do you do it not just with traditional large companies, mm -hmm. but with startups as well? How do you work with government to achieve their goals and businesses? How do you give back at the same time? How do you get an innovation fair really going? And as you've already figured out, that's what excites me the most. Trying to change the world. I had the Opportunity to do that a little bit at Cisco, change the world, works, lives, <laughs> learns, and plays with the internet. And perhaps I'm getting another chance with literally startup, uh, startups, startup nations, startup world. So this is a, a new chapter for you. And you mentioned the book, but just tell us about the book, Connecting the Dots. Well, that's exactly what the new chapter is about, yeah. which is I love teaching, as you've already figured out. I, I love coaching. It's particularly fun with these startups who are like grandkids, Rich. You get to coach them. And then on Friday nights, you give them back to management. <laughs> and I go have a burger. Right. ginger ale. Right. Uh, this book is all about the lessons that I've learned over the last uh, 40 years in business, uh, as much about the mistakes as the success.
successes. Uh, if people agree with everything I say in there, it will have been I will have failed. And if you want to see what I'm doing, just follow me on uh, uh, Twitter at J- J- T- John T. Chambers, and uh, the book will come out in the fall, probably in the October time period. That's great. Well, we've all been following you for years and years, and um, you've been this trendsetter and and trailblazer, and um, and I'm you know have has been a great privilege to to work with you. Feelings mutual. And so we've been great partners. It's fun to do. Thank you for giving back. It's been great. And especially, um, you know, just your concentration on Asia and the focus on really helping people in both the United States and and different corners of of Asia is really, is really something terrific. And I am grateful you came on the show and and gave folks a chance to to hear about that and to hear about uh, where you're going. So uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And John, thank you once again, and we'll see you next time. Sounds good, Rich. Thank Looking you. forward to it. Thank you.